0: Welcome to New Books in History. I'm your host, Christine Lamberson. Here at New Books in History, we look for great new books about history and then interview their authors. Today, we'll be interviewing Udi Greenberg, who has just written a great new book called The Weimar Century, German Immigrés and the Ideological Foundations of the Cold War. Welcome, Udi.
1: Hello. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, thank you for being here. So your book is about the ideological foundations of the Cold War and about uh, the Weimar century. And we want to hear a little bit about what your uh, contributions to that subject is. But before we start talking about the book, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be a historian.
1: Well, I was born and raised in Israel, um, and I went to school in Jerusalem, to the Hebrew U in Jerusalem, and this is where I got my PhD. My interest in history comes mostly from my own family history. My grandparents were refugees from Nazi Germany. They fled to South Africa in 1938, and my father was born in South Africa. Um, my mother's side of the family comes from Tsarist Russia, and they were refugees from there, and um, migrated to Palestine, now Israel, in 1919. Um, so, f- I was always fascinated with my own family's history and with their stories. And I grew up um, always listening to stories from my grandparents. And this is really where my interest in modern European history comes from.
0: So, how did that interest in history develop into an interest in this particular topic
1: um, that was both something that was always on my mind as I was growing up and also an accident. I mean, I was always interested in a modern European history. If you grow up in Israel, you also learn a lot about Germany in particular. Um, and also, uh, because my grandparents, even though I did not grow up with them, um, they lived in in the UK. And uh, even though I did not speak German, it was a topic that always... Um, had a special appeal for me because of my family's history. I decided to become a historian of Germany per se quite by accident because I was on a student exchange in Germany, and I learned German. And then when it was concluded, I thought that if I'm going to study history, it makes sense to study a place whose language I speak. Uh, So that was uh, both a coincidence and kind of uh, something that was on my mind for many, many years before.
0: Great. So then your book focuses on five uh, figures and kind of traces a intellectual slash political history about their intellectual formation in Weimar, Germany, and then how they come to influence the post-World War II order. And so I was curious how you came to settle on that topic or how you came to write about these figures. Did you start thinking about or did you start with a particular question might be the way to ask that?
1: Um, I was always interested in the question of um, Europe's transformation after 1945, and that's a question that many historians have been interested in for a very long time, of how come um, societies that were so violent, so autocratic, so prone to mass violence and to war and expansion, how come they stabilized so quickly after 1945? Um, For a long time, the main ways in which people explained it was mostly due to the Cold War and to American uh, hegemony in Western Europe as a response to the communist hegemony in Eastern Europe. For a long time, the form in which people answered this question was saying that it was a process of Americanization or Westernization. It was about how Europeans embraced ideas that the United States kind of imposed or projected after uh, World War II. And that is what helped Europeans embrace this. And this seemed always, to me, to be um, not fully satisfactory. Um, explanation in the sense that um, people don't just automatically transform because of the presence of a new society there, even if it was so overwhelmingly stronger like the United States was in compared to European societies. So that was the main question I always asked myself um, is how come and w- w- I, I always felt like maybe there's a deeper explanation and how I came to um, think about those individuals was a way that each each one of those individuals come from a different political and social background because Germany was very polarized politically. It was also enormous political diversity. So each one of them represents a different group and how it transformed from the 1920s to the 1950s and how it came to embrace um, the Cold War logic and democracy um, also and anti-communism. So one is a socialist, one is a conservative Catholic, one is a conservative Protestant, uh, one is uh, liberal. And what I was trying to s- through those individuals to kind of shed light on the bigger transformation of each one of those large groups in Europe, if that makes sense.
0: Absolutely. Just here might be a good moment to have you go ahead and list off who those five individuals are for our readers who right. might have heard <laughs> of them.
1: Right. Um, Well, the five individuals are – they are all individuals who are largely forgotten today, and part of the purpose of this book is to bring them back to life and to attention. And that is because during the 1940s and the 1950s, in the immediate post-war years, both in Germany and in the United States, those were enormously influential figures that everybody knew. They were very, very well-known. Their books were read by everyone. They were assigned in universities. Uh, but they were very much forgotten with the end of the Cold War, um, and that is the way I chose them as representative figures. The first one is Karl-Joachim Friedrich, or Friedrich, as is known in the United States. Um, perhaps the at the time, uh, one of the most influential ones. He was a Protestant to go- come from a very privileged background in Germany. He moved to the United States in the twenties and had a career as a political scientist at Harvard, and then worked as the chief legal advisor for the American occupation of West Ger- of Germany. And then West Germany, he helped draft the constitution of West Germany under the American occupation, and then became one of the most famous theoreticians of. Um, anti-communism in the 1940s and 50s. And I was interested to see how his ideas about higher education in the way that he transformed both um, uh, American education and West German education, how his ideas um, came from the 1920s and from his experience as a student in 1920s uh, Germany. The second figure I was interested in is perhaps the most surprising one. is called Ernst frankl, who was a socialist, uh, social democratic as they were known then, a lawyer, and he began his career in the 1920s as the legal advisor for the main labor unions in Germany. He fled to the United States. Interestingly, after World War II, he became the chief legal advisor of the American occupation of Korea. And he was a major, major figure in the division of Korea during the Cold War because he was a fierce anti-communist. will um, helped lead and shape many of the investment policies and development policies in the Korean economy after World War II, and then he moved back in 1951 after the Korean War started. Uh, he moved back to West Germany and became one of the most famous political theorists uh, in Germany. His writings were taught in high schools um, well into the 21st century, um, and he's considered one of the main theoreticians of democracy. So through him, I tell the story of socialism in uh, Germany. The third figure is uh, called Waldemar Gurian, who was a Catholic conservative journalist who also fled to the United States. He was one of the leading anti-Nazi intellectuals and journalists in the 1930s. He fled and found a home in Indiana, in South Bend, and there he became uh, one of the most famous writers against communism. And I show how many of his ideas that were distributed all across the United States actually have their origins. In the 1920s, Catholics were fiercely anti-communist, uh, well before the Cold War, and main, they were among the most important uh, political and intellectual and religious groups who mobilized against communism long before the Cold War. So I show through his story in many ways how anti-communism uh, was not sparked just by the Cold War, but actually had its origins, and it helped fuel anti-communism in the United States uh, even before 1947, um, when most historians believe the Cold War would be the starting date. The fourth figure is Karl Leuvenstein, who is, was a um, very liberal uh, liberal um lawyer in Germany he was from a Jewish origins. He's mostly famous for his theory of um of so militant democracy. He coined in the 1920s against communism and against nazism even before the Nazis came to power. He coined a theory or a term called militant democracy that claimed that democracies have the right when they are defending themselves against uh, anti-democratic movement to limit the liberties and the rights of the, of people. For example, the freedom of speech, the freedom of the press, the freedom of religion, all of those could be, um, harshly limited by the government if the other, um, if it was employed against anti-democratic forces. During the 1920s, that was a very provocative idea and it was very much in the minority. I show how he, like the other figures I mentioned, fled to the United States um, after the Nazis came to power in 1933. And here, interestingly, he started working for the um, for the American government as part of its experiment of repressing communist and fascist in Latin America during the 1940s, even before the United States joined. And I show how he helped um, build a network of detainment camps in which enemies of democracies uh, were arrested by U.S. agents. The story, for example, how in World War II, Japanese-Americans were detained is a very well-known story. What is less well-known is the United States implemented the same policies also in other countries in Latin America with the support of local governments. And I show how his ideas about militing democracy helped inspire um, those actions. And I show how after... 1945, he returned to Germany to participate in denazification policies, and I show how Levenstein's idea about militant democracy then became very, very popular in the mainstream of um, political thought and politics in Germany, and they were employed especially against communists. For example, the German uh, Communist Party was banned, and it was the only country... um, in Western Europe that banned communism by law. Even the United States did not do so during the Cold War. So through his story, we see how ideas about democracy um, that were on the margins in the 1920s became the mainstream, both in the United States and in West Germany after 1945. And the final figure I'm looking at is um, perhaps the most famous one, and that is Hans Morgenthau, who was the The theoretician of the so-called realist school of foreign relations, and I show he who claimed that countries ultimately, when they engage in foreign relations, what they should be looking for is not ideals and not the ideals like democracy or so on, but raw power and dominance over other countries. And I show how his ideas were very, very influential among policymakers in the 1950s as they were shaping U.S. foreign relations in the world. But I conclude with him because he, interestingly, was also a main, among the main uh, individuals who spoke against the war in Vietnam and the American in, involvement in Vietnam. And through him, I also traced the story about how ideas from the 1920s were important not only to the construction of the Cold War and anti communism, but also, ultimately, in the 1960s, um, also helped inspire, in fact, opposition to Cold War policies like the invasion of Vietnam. So that is why he is. Um, the concluding figure of this book. So those are the five individuals. That was a fairly long answer for your question.
0: (laughs) No, that's fine. Uh, They're all fascinating individuals in their own right, and they're actually quite different. So I'm curious about how they all come together in order to shape this post-war order, this new Cold War.
1: Indeed, uh, one of the main ish, uh, one of the main goals of this book, in many ways, is to challenge the way that many historians and scholars talk about the Cold War. For many years, people thought about the Cold War as an era of narrowing political horizons. That is uh, a period in which a consensus was forged by uh, between the moderate left and the moderate right, and many ideas were deemed illegitimate uh, or dominant. And in many ways, people talk about the Cold War as an era of consensus, and the consequence of this was that the boundaries of what is legitimate were very much narrowed, Um, especially traditionally uh, scholars who who wrote in the 1970s and 1980s described the early Cold War as an era of kind of fierce conservatism um, at home that forced consensus uh, on domestic issues and international issues through fierce anti-communism. Part of the goals of this book as I see it is to talk about the cold war as a very diverse intellectual and political world, an era in which, um, uh, anti-communism of course had its, uh, um, terrible repercussions often and had a very repressive element because blaming people for being communist was a very effective tool, sometimes to shut them down. Um, And prevent alternative voices. But one of the reasons that the Cold War was so strong and so mobilizing and so effective is that because so many different political worldviews and people of such diverse backgrounds could identify with it and found a way um, and believe that they have to support anti-communist mobilization. So I wanted to see, to show how in many ways through this diversity, to show how the Cold War is a story not so much of just rigid anti-communism being imposed from above, but it's more probably accurate to describe it as willful mobilization of different groups who come together based on ideas that they have before, 1945, what they they come together under the banner of anti-communism. And that provides us with a bit of a more nuanced, I think, view of the Cold War.
0: Yeah, I'm curious about how these guys' is anti-communism develops or to put it another way in your book, you make the point that they're pro-democracy and anti-communist and that that sometimes has wonderful effects and it sometimes has constraining effects. It sometimes has tragic effects. And I'm curious, Just to, especially from today's point of view, how we can look back and explain the fact that they are so fiercely anti-communist and so repressive of communism while also thinking of themselves as advancing democracy. How do they square that in their head or where does that really serious anti-communism come from for them?
1: That is a great question. I think one of the main questions that scholars of the Cold War ask in general is what is the reason that people were so afraid of communism after... um, after World War II, the first part to this and uh, the first part to the answer to this question is the fact that, of course, anti-communism did not begin with World War II. It had long roots that began in 1917 with the overthrow of the government in Russia and the establishment of the Soviet Union. What was especially alarming about this is the fa- about this event with the fact that the communists were minority. They didn't need the support of the masses. The vast majority of the people of Russia and the Soviet Union did not support communism. But this revolution succeeded nevertheless thanks to the brilliant conspiracy of Lenin and the people who worked around him. So one of the reasons for, anti- for the fear about anti-communism is the belief that a small group of people can bring about such a radical transformation to the economy, to politics, and to religion, and so on. And the second reason that anti-communism became such a dominant force after World War II is, of course, the experience of Germany and Japan during the 1930s and 40s. Both Japan and Germany were functioning democracies. They had republics, they had elected officials, and so on in the 1920s, and both of them willfully collapsed with the Great Depression, and both of them transformed into authoritarian and ultimately very aggressive, and in the case of both of them, genocidal regimes. And the real fear um, that people had after World War II was that if democracies that come in an industrialized modern societies like Germany and Japan, if democracies like that could collapse so easily, um, what would prevent it from happening again in Britain or in the United States? In retrospect, for us, that seems like an absolutely ludicrous idea, the belief that maybe the United States could collapse into communism. But those fears were very dominant because everyone who was reading the news in the 1940s, uh, we had the experience of seeing other countries going through that experience. This, and the third part to it, and that is the part that is often forgotten, is a very brief experience between 1946 and 1948, during which, uh, and 49, during which a, variety, a wide array of countries, one after the other, were t- transformed from um, a weak democratic regime into communist ones. First, in Eastern Europe, Hungary, Bulgaria, Yugoslavia, Poland, all of them were transformed into communist countries within two years. And then again, also the revolution in China and in North Korea that transformed them into communist regimes. In retrospect, uh, that gave birth to the theory of domino theory that people until today criticize as ludicrous theory that claim that if one country becomes communist, Then potentially all the countries after it will, um, around it will become communist. But if you read the newspapers in 1947, 48, or 49, this idea would not look as ridiculous to you. Um, It would seem, in fact, to make perfect sense because that was the experience with which you lived. And that is the reason that people, the fear of communism was so dominant and so strong. This is the experience that people live through. Now, as to the question, uh, and that led to a new way of thinking about democracy in general, the belief, uh, and that was not the case before the 1930s and 40s, the belief that the real weakness of democracy is that it could so easily collapse from within. And that led many people to believe that in order to create democracy, in order to democratize other countries, whether Germany after the war or Japan or Korea, in the case of Dan Frankel that I talked about, They all believe that, ultimately, if you want to create a stable democracy, the real enemy that you'll be facing is from within, and more than anyone, communist. Uh, So the way they thought about democracy constantly was how can we make sure that it stabilizes and how we can make sure that a small minority like the communists could not take over it the same way that fascists uh, or Nazis did in Italy, in Japan, and in Germany. Um, and that, regard, th- that is the way I would explain why for people from that time period, the, the protagonist of the book for sure, but so many other people, ultimately the project of building a stable democracy and democratizing other countries was ultimately synonymous with repressing communists. Um, and that had, like you said, very tragic consequences in the sense that the fierce anti-communism sometimes led to mass repression of people who were not communists at all. Um, you know the people who were arrested in the detainment camps that were designed by Karl Lavenstein. Most of them were not communists. Many of them were, in fact, Jewish refugees from Nazi Germany. Who just happened to live in Latin America, and the local government decided they want to confiscate their property, so they reported to the American government that they were either Nazi sympathizers or communist sympathizers, uh, and they were arrested. Or the same story that in the case of Ernst Frankel worked in. Uh, South Korea and helped um, bring about the division of Korea um, a lot of, he never bothered to think about what is the price that the Korean people are paying for this division of their country about breaking families, breaking communities during this division. To him it seems absolutely natural that you had to separate the communist parts of the country from the non-communist in order to defend democracy in the southern part uh, of the peninsula so in many ways Um, obviously, and that's part of the story that I'm telling, is how the deep association between democracy and anti-communism led to fierce activism that had sometimes very impressive results, especially in West Germany, but sometimes had also very tragic results, um, especially in Latin America and Southeast and in East Asia.
0: Okay, that makes a lot of sense. I'm curious then, you really ground... Uh, these figures, intellectual development in the Weimar Republic. But you also say that the Weimar Republic isn't just a cautionary tale, right? So this is a failed democracy. You can see it collapsing from within. So clearly that's part of their understanding. But how, first of all, perhaps the general question is just how does the Weimar Republic figure into their foundation and how do they look to it as a place for their ideas of something of more than a cautionary tale?
1: And, uh, that is a great question. and Indeed, one of the main uh, arguments of my book is to ch- or one of the main goals of this book is to challenge some of the standard narratives of Weimar Germany, the first German democracy that was created after World War I and then destroyed by the Nazis in 1933. Historians always talked about Weimar Germany as a story, like you said, of cautionary tale of a weak democracy that was easily ruined. Um, but what I argue that in fact... Weimar Germany provided many of the foundations or many of the ideological pillars of transformation that will come after World War II. It, created, um, the, it provided with Germans with the first language to think about democracy. And what I'm interested in those figures, and you need to show how their way of thinking about democracy did not start in 1945. It did not start with American education or by absorbing American ideas. They developed their own ideas about democracy even though some of them had you know, Catholic or socialist or Calvinist or liberal coloring or variations, depending on their background. But ultimately, their ideas about democracy de- were developed already in the interwar period as part of the experience in living in Germany. And what I show is that surprisingly little has changed through the experience of the rise of Nazism and going to exile to the United States and the experience of total war during World War II Actually, when they came back to Germany or traveled to le- to Latin America or to East Asia, when they thought about democracy after the war, ultimately they were using the same ideas, the same language, the same concept that they already used before. And um, and that includes also their anti-communism, that all of them were anti communist long before um, the 1940s. So in many ways, through their stories, what I try to show is that the foundations of so many ideas and policies and trends that we usually associate with the post-war era, with Americanization, with the Cold War, actually have their origins in the 1920s. And that is one of the reasons that they proved to be so successful. That is, one of the reasons that the democratization efforts in West Germany proved to be so stable after 1945, at least in West Germany, partly was because... The Americans were working through local agents who had their own ideas, who supported democracy long before and were able to explain to the German people why the policies that the Americans were implementing actually are German or actually have their origins long before the Americans arrived in the continent. So in many ways, what I show is that ironically, even though historians refer to Weimar as a cautionary tale. In fact, it also provided positive models for democratization and very stable concepts that allowed for Germany to uh, ultimately develop a very stable and robust democratic culture um, after
0: 1945. Okay, so this is part of your answer to the question that we sort of started with at the beginning in terms of how does West Germany transform into being the stable democracy very, very quickly, right? So, so I'm curious of how you see these figures. Are these guys – I mean, they're clearly very influential men. They move into very influential positions in the government in a number of different places, right. in German government, in the U.S. government, etc. Do you see them as thought leaders or do you see these as ideas that are floating around Germany that it's really easy for them to sort of uh, promote them within German society? Because a lot of other Germans also were thinking about these things.
1: That, exactly. is that, <laughs> yeah. that is always the one million dollar question. that is always the one million dollar question when one comes to study elites in general, uh, when and especially when one studies political theorists, who, as influential as they are, we don't know how many people read their book, and even those who read the book, we don't know how many of them agreed with their ideas, how many actually absorbed and embraced their ideas, how many understood their ideas. Um, that is always um, a question that is very hard for historians to measure because we can't quantify influence. Uh, We can say that someone was influential because we see the echo of his ideas in many other speeches or publications, but it's very hard to quantify it. And in that regard, influential figures are always influential not because they formulate ideas that other people just passively embrace. They're influential because they help articulate ideas that people already have on their mind. And in that regard, what I try to look at is figures who are you know influential in the sense that they worked in very high authority positions, they worked as advisor to the occupation, authorities or advisor for governments, for important publishing houses, and so on. but I am most interested about them as people whose ideas capture a mood of a large political group and part part of the ways in which we measure that is through letters that they receive, you know if we see a thinker that received thousands of letters from readers who say that his ideas were tremendously influential, or if he was invited to speak to thousands and thousands of people. I mean, all those figures, it's hard for us to envision this uh, political scientist having this audience today, but all those figures, when they were giving lecture tours, um, you know, they would go through a lecture tour through West Germany that would include dozens of cities with Thousands and thousands of people arriving for each lecture wanting to hear what they have to say. They were reported about in newspapers. They were recorded in the radio. Um, we have reports, you know, in my case, I was looking at the archives of American educational centers in West Germany, and there, the heads of those educational centers in, let's say, Stuttgart or Berlin, in West Berlin, or Munich, were sending gushing letters asking these people to come again and again and again to visit because they said that is because they drew um, audiences of hundreds of people who came to listen to them. So I see these people, again, they do not shape the way in in which other people think, but what they do, they provide a theoretical or intellectual or political language through which people can articulate their own beliefs. Um, And in that regard, they're important because they both help shape the way people think, but they also reflect the changing of the public mood or the political mood uh, in a given situation. And that changes, of course, from one individual to the other. Some of them are more influential in such circles. Some of them are influential mostly among policymakers and not others. But And I try in the book to differentiate which one is more influential when to the extent that I can. But this is where I see their importance as kind of reflective figure who reflect broad trends.
0: Gotcha. So these figures seem like the perfect figures in some ways for what the United States is doing in the Cold War, right? And I'm a US historian. So now I'm curious a little bit about how the US fits into the story. And I'm curious about how Mm -hmm. these guys rise to having such a prominent role in the US Cold War project, and also how they then in turn shape the U.S. Cold War project, which, of course, you're arguing they are, have a lot more agency than us U.S. historians would usually give them.
1: Correct. One of the things that I found most interesting about the story of the early Cold War, um, and that comes from reading other historians, is what surprised me the most is to see how many German emigres um, were important figures in shaping this. You know, when I was reading reports on the State Department, I saw that they were quoting Hans Morgenthau or that are recording Karl Joachim Friedrich or Valdemar um, Gurian, that they mention to each other that their papers are, you know, their essays are distributed by policymakers um, and then later are proliferating even in speeches of uh, policymakers. And I was very curious about why that is. And that's something that a few historians uh, have started to explore, but that's something that I thought should be done more systematically. Um, and indeed, some of them ended up working is important figures for American policymakers, for American foundations like the Rockefeller Foundation, uh, for the State Department and so on. And the answer that I came to is ultimately that many of the dilemmas that American policymakers and Americans in general were thinking about and facing in the 1940s in the United States were ultimately very, very similar to the same questions that those figures were thinking about um, when they were thinking about Europe. The question of how do you build a stable democracy? How do you build a stable world in which regimes that are aggressive like Nazi Germany or Imperial Japan do not threaten the United States? What is often forgotten and um, is important to remember is that the 1940s and into the 1950s are a moment of great uncertainty also in the United States. Even though the United States won the war decisively... Many Americans were terrified by the fear that democracy would collapse at home. This is why anti-communism is such a potent force in American politics in the 1950s. They're all terrified that what happened in Germany and Japan could happen at home in the United States. Therefore, many important figures in the American establishment, political and intellectual and scholarly, were interested in what Germans have to say. People who were democratic Many of them were Jewish, of Jewish background, so their anti-Nazi credentials were impeccable. Those are people who are fiercely democratic and have the experience of living through the collapse of democracy and developing ideas about how to stabilize democracy and how to identify both its weaknesses and its strengths. And what I found is that many policymakers were looking and reaching out to those kind of German immigrants because they thought they could learn a lot from them and from their experiences. And that is how their ideas and their um, concept became integral to the um, American Cold War thinking. If I um, can give just one example, for example, one of the most popular concepts um, that is associated among historians with the Cold War is the concept of totalitarianism. This word did not really exist before the 1930s, was not very popular before the 1940s, even though it existed before And Americans, when they talked about the the Soviet Union from the 1940s onward, that was the term that they constantly utilized. They said that it is totalitarian. And what they wanted to say by this is that the Soviet Union is like Nazi Germany. Those are two regimes that are naturally trying to control every aspect of human life and that they are naturally aggressive. And therefore, if you want to fight the Soviet Union effectively, you need to learn from how the war against Nazism was fought. That was a term that was hugely popular in the 1940s when President Truman declared that the goal of U.S. foreign relations in 1947 was to combat the Soviet Union. He did not say Soviet Union. He did not say communism. He said totalitarian regimes. But what I found that this term was actually originally coined by Waldemar Gurian, was German emigre, and it was originally coined in the 1930s when Waldemar Gurian was trying to mobilize Catholics against the Nazis because Catholics were traditionally anti-communist, he was using the term by saying, Nazism and communism are the same kind of regime, both of them are totalitarian, and we as Catholics have to fight both those regimes. And this term found its way into the United States with Gurian himself. Um, And so part of the story that is interesting to me is to show how ideas that were first forged in Europe, in the European context, to deal with specific European uh, conflicts, ultimately resonated very, very strongly and echoed the fears that many Americans had after World War II, and that is why so many Americans proved to be very receptive of those ideas. In that regard, the title of the book, The Weimar Century, is an allusion to the American Century, the famous essay by Henry Luce that in 1941 Prophesized that the 20th century was going to be an American century because the United States will become dominant in the world and will spread its ideas. But what I showed is that in many ways in the process of doing those, of building the American century, the United States in fact also absorbed ideas from Europe through German emigres and helped distribute those ideas. Um, And that is what made it at the same time also a Weimar century. That is to universalize and to spread ideas from the Weimar uh, period in Germany.
0: Excuse me. Okay, so that's a really great example of how convincing you are that these ideas are spreading from Europe into America and across the world. I'm curious if you might be able to give us a little idea of where the story goes. What happens to these immigrants? You end in the 1960s and talk a little bit about this. What happens to their influence? Right.
1: Um, Well, some of their ideas proved to be remarkably resilient, like the concepts of totalitarianism um, that had a little, uh, a very short renaissance with the beginning of war and terror after September 11th and the struggle against Muslim extremism, excuse me, Um, several scholars a few years ago tried to revive it by claiming that organizations like Al-Qaeda or ISIS, even though they're not they don't have a state and they don't rule a state, their ideologies are ultimately totalitarian too because they try to subjugate the entire human uh, society and soul to one ideology and it's naturally aggressive. So some of those ideas actually prove to transcend the Cold War and to live after it. Um, The theory of realism um, that hans Morgenthau coined in the very early Cold War in 1948, 1949 and onward some of his books are still taught in universities until today and is still an important figure when one studies the history of foreign relations, even though the Cold War is long um, over, at least in Western Europe and Eastern Europe. Um, but the vast majority of their ideas, they, they, the way in which they conceptualized democracy as something that requires vigilance and mobilization and constant struggle against extremists. Um, their fierce anti-communism, those ideas... Began to to lose their potency or their appeal with the generation of the 1960s and 1970s. And this for generation that was that grew up after the depression and after World War II, that did not have an experience of remembering how democracies collapsed from within and transformed into aggressive dictatorship. For this generation, um, the generation of the, that became, you know, were adult became adults in the 1960s um all this talk about democracy is something that requires vigilance and anti-communism and so on seemed like empty words and much of their theories about democracy and politics began to lose their appeal and by the 1980s and the 1990s they were largely forgotten and definitely after the end of the cold war so and that's one of the reasons that they were even though that this, even though they were so influential in the 1950s they were forgotten so quickly because they didn't their ideas no longer spoke the political sensitivities of following decades. So that's the reason that the book ends in the 1960s, because this is when the dramatic influence and the way in which they echoed widespread notions about politics and democracy began to lose their centrality and ultimately began to fade very seriously.
0: So I can't resist asking you one more sort of uh, theoretical or uh, future tense question. Since you brought up the war on terror and the uh, analogies here. (laughs) So as you mentioned in the introduction, right, scholars, policymakers, historians, political scientists, all these people often look to the transition of Germany in post-World War II, the transition of Japan in post-World War II into stable democracies, the quick, successful transition to say, essentially, right. what are we doing wrong in all these American state-building projects since then? And you make a convincing argument right. that these figures and that this democratic tradition uh, from Weimar Germany is really important to that story. So is there a lesson that all of these people looking for lessons to this post-World War II German moment can draw from this, or is having forgotten these figures an important answer to their queries about American state building?
1: I do. I'm very cautious to uh, answer, you know, to provide a policy-relevant answer to to this question. I don't think that the Purpose of studying history is to provide memorandum for policymakers, obviously. But um, if I were to answer, my, how, what can we learn from these figures? Is how much, if the United States is to engage with other countries, it has to, how much it has to recognize the power of local traditions, local forces, and local experiences in shaping people's response to it. That is part of what the book is trying to show is that Americans were never able to just arrive somewhere and impose their ideas if they were successful in West Germany, and how one defines success is always open for discussion. If we were to say that they were successful in West Germany, it was largely because they were operating with the consent and with the mediation of local people and local emigres who helped them grasp some of the um, local trends, and were able to mediate and translate between the two roles of the German people and American policymakers. In Japan, in parallel, the same thing happened with many people who were children of missionaries to Japan, who fulfilled the same kind of parallel role that German emigrates did um, in West Germany. And that is a very unique constellation that happened mostly because of, the, because of Nazi anti-Semitism pushed so many of those emigrates. Dozens of thousands of people to the United States, and they were present in the United States and found their way into centers of power and policymaking and to influential places in the scholarly world. That is a very, very unique constellation that happened in the 1930s and 1940s. I, I personally, even though I'm not an Americanist historian or a historian of the United States, I cannot think of any parallel of that kind um, for the rest of the 20th century or the early 21st century. Um, and in that regard, the book is not only, as I said, the, st- the book is not only a story of celebrating success, just as important, it's also the story about how ideas from the Weimar period also set limits and very harsh limits sometimes to the political imagination. Some of their thinking was ultimately dramatically inflexible. It was very rigid. And some of their fierce anti-communism um, proved to be damaging and very tragic. Um, and should serve in many ways as a cautionary tale to the good intentions of very, very smart and educated people uh, who had, without a doubt, firm commitment to democracy and democratization, and despite their goodwill, ultimately often produced the exact opposite that um, produced harsh repression. So the story, in many ways, of the Weimar century of this book is a story of cautious, um, a story that is in many ways, a bittersweet one, both story that was be- very heroic on one end, but at the same time, very tragic.
0: Right. And you do that particularly well in talking about these figures' influence in some places outside of either the United States or Germany, right? Some of their... Exactly. And that's that is
1: why that part of the story is so important, because I think a lot of people would agree that the transformation of Germany from a racist dictatorship under Nazism to a stable Western... Um, welfare state and democracy is one of the most amazing uh, transformation of world politics in the 20th century um, but we have to remember that the very same ideas that brought success in one part of the world often inflicted tragic, tragic consequences in other parts of the world and that's why those stories have to be read together so we can get a good sense of both the limits and the possibilities that those ideas brought about.
0: Okay, great. Well, thank you. We've taken up enough of your time here, and like I say, it's a great book, and I hope lots of people will read it. I am curious if you might tell us a little bit about what you are working on now.
1: Um, sure. I can, I'm currently starting uh, research for a new book, and that is, um, continues my interest in religion in the 20th century, and it expands a little bit on the work I've done in this first book. Um, and what I'm trying to study is the relationship between the reconstruction of Europe after World War II and its transformation, more, most importantly, from a continent of nation-states to a, um, a continent of transnational integration, the creation of the European Union after World War II, in which countries willfully gave up their sovereignty and came together in a transnational organization. I'm trying to understand to what struck me the most when I studied is how strong religion Uh, what a strong role religion plays in this transformation, how much religious ideology played a role in this. Um, Many of the first policymakers of the European Union were devout Christians, and they often talked about how they understood their goal as part of a mission to re-Christianize the continent and to bring about Christian policy. So first I'm studying this element and what is the role of religion in forging post-war European identity. But I'm also trying to study how ideas that um, Christian missionaries to Africa and to Asia from the early 20th century played into this process, because what I found is that many of the figures who are important figures in the creation of the European Union were members of missionary organizations. They talked about European cooperation and transnational integration and so on, long before the 1940s, but they talked first about Christian and pan-European cooperation in the colonies, in Africa and Asia is part of an idea of re- of Christianizing Africans and Asians. And what I try to show is how the process of the collapse of European empires after World War II and the process of decolonization led many of these people and organizations to relocate to Europe, and they kind of duplicate the thing that they said about Christianizing Africans and Asians, they just duplicated. it to European continent, talk about re-Christianizing Europe. So what I'm trying to study is both the role of religion in shaping international politics, but also how the story of the collapse of empires abroad helped transform European identity at home. And that is a connection that I'm working on now, and that will be the topic of my next book.
0: Okay, great. That sounds fascinating. Hopefully we can have you back on when you get that finished. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Well, thank you for joining us today. And again, I would recommend to all of our listeners to check out your book.
1: Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.